a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that exists for the purpose of encouraging and empowering individuals like you who have chosen not to participate in the lie. And there's a lot of official lies that are swirling around us. And I, I think it, I, I can't remember who it was who talked about, was it Dalrymple who talked about, you know, the purpose of, of all the propaganda that communist and other totalitarian regimes would engage in wasn't so much to deceive the people, but to humiliate them. Because when you are forced to participate in a lie, when you're forced to pretend that uh, reality doesn't exist and what they're telling us is what we have to say, everything is, that's just, uh, that's just driving home that you are not in control of your own life. And we see a lot of this around us today. We're going to talk about some specific examples of this, in fact, as we move forward. But first of all, I want to tip my hat to you for having the courage to challenge and to refuse to participate in the lie. How do I know that's where you're coming from? Well, I'm, I, I, honestly, I don't. But I'm guessing the fact that you are listening to this program is a pretty good indicator that you place a higher value on truth and reality and principle than you do on accolades or approval of the people around you. What an interesting time. And it's not, a, it's not the easier path. So, you know, it's, you know, I'm not looking down on the people who choose not to do it. I think they probably have good reason not to. I mean, come on, look at the people who have lost their jobs, the people who are singled out, canceled by cancel culture and so forth. We live in a time where if you're going to stand for something, you're going to pay a price. There's no way around that. So, you know, we're taking a steeper, rockier path than uh, most people would choose to take. But in the end, we do it because our conscience tells us that it's worth it. And historically, you look at the people who have made the difference through times of crisis and through times of, of upheaval, far worse than what we're going through at the moment. It's the ones who can remain rooted in reality, committed to truth, and standing on principle, who carry the day. What a privilege. I mean, it's humbling. This is, this, this is not about how much better we are than everybody else. This is, this is a, a privilege that you and I have that not everybody will, will choose to participate in. So hold your head high. You're in good company. I feel better just for hanging with you. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAMO.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. I've joked around a little bit over the last, uh, well, the last couple of years in particular, but um, who knew? The people who are so intent on making sure that we live in clown world seem to have serious issues with the sound of horns going honk, honk. In fact, if I'm hearing this correctly, Facebook is actually cracking down on people who use the term honk. Apparently, uh, that is now a violation of the terms of service. And this is just more evidence that uh, the, the desire, the lust to dominate and control that narrative is really, really strong in some people right now. So I want you to try this on 
for Honk Honk. I'm going to play a little clip for you. This is Ottawa. This is downtown Ottawa. And this is <laughs> this is what it sounds like when you get thousands, I'm sorry, thousands and thousands of people righteously PO'd and sounding off. Welcome to Clown World. Okay, this, I mean, this is drone footage. I'm playing this from a YouTube clip, but it's drone footage flying over downtown Ottawa. Thousands of vehicles, horns honking all over the place. This is from February 1st. This was, uh, this was part of the Freedom Convoy. And just, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, they're being heard. And there's a, there's a writer by the name of uh, Hugh Hunter who actually lives in downtown Ottawa. In fact, he says, as I am writing this, I'm wearing noise-canceling headphones because even with the windows closed, the sound of horns from the Freedom Convoy truckers is deafening. <clears throat> now, he asks, so why can't I stop smiling? Well, he says, I can't stop smiling because my Canadian countrymen have stepped up on one of the great moral questions facing my generation. Should government health mandates be forcibly applied to ordinary people who want to be left alone to live their lives? Now, the Canadian government has made vaccinations necessary to do certain jobs. So the government says, if you want to be an international trucker or a banker or a public servant, you must let us inject a COVID-19 vaccine into your body. Now, of course, as some have disingenuously pointed out, well, there's an alternative. If you don't want the jab, you can just give up the career that you've built in some of our cases over many years. Now, maybe you didn't want the job all that badly after all. Where have I heard this before? Oh, yeah, he says, these are the same options that were offered to young actresses by Harvey Weinstein. Now, some people object. Yes, they say this is compulsion, but in the case of COVID-19, it's a necessary compulsion. We are at war with a virus. In order to win this war, we must do things that we would not ordinarily contemplate, as we have done in other wars. Things like, in turn, our Japanese or German fellow citizens and drop firebombs and nuclear bombs on women and children devastate jungles and their inhabitants with Agent Orange or subject randomly selected grannies to invasive pre-flight screening. Now, admittedly, in all of those cases, such measures came to seem both evil and useless. But in our case, moral argument, or moral, the argument goes, moral compromise might just prove to be the key to victory. He says, several years ago, when I was teaching philosophy in universities across this continent, I often discussed this scenario with my students. It's a particular, it's a danger particular rather to democracies, and it's called the tyranny of the majority. A majority can tyrannize a minority when the majority forces the minority to comply simply because the majority is bigger and stronger. Now, of course, that's not the story that the majority tells itself. The majority thinks of their actions as righteous and urgent, and they insist that no one could legitimately disagree. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's why to properly evaluate mandatory vaccinations, we should try to achieve a critical distance. Now, Hugh, Hugh Hunter says, we should ask whether the bureaucratic incentives to find COVID cases and disincentives to find bad vaccine reactions could not possibly have influenced our final tally. We should wonder exactly why health services have been unable to disambiguate deaths with COVID from deaths from COVID. 
We should at least acknowledge that many countries with low vaccination rates also appear to have lower death rates than our own. We should consider why nations like Japan are using alternative treatments. Now, he says, I think by now, most people have heard such arguments. But if you haven't, the off-guardian offers an excellent crib sheet, which he links to. The point is, there is room for intelligent people to disagree. And if intelligent people can disagree... Is it not a mistake to shout down or force into obedience the reasonable minority? See, in the heat of the moment when the pressure is on, it takes moral courage and practical wisdom to stand up for a minority. Being alert for such moments is perhaps a lot to ask of people who don't want to spend their lives thinking about things like a tyranny of the majority. So he says, I reserve my full contempt for my former colleagues in the academy. The reason that our societies offer executive tier pay and the protection of tenure to academics, and in particular to philosophers, is so that in moments like this, they will serve as the conscience of the nation. And with the exception of a few brave voices, he says, my beloved discipline of philosophy has failed the test of our times. Now he says, after the fact, once we're able to judge clearly again, we may be surprised to regard all that we've agreed to. Many people will wonder, what on earth had them so scared? Many will lament the powers transferred to government. Many who are quiet today will admit that they had doubts all along. And as horror stories of vaccine side effects continue to trickle through my social circle, Hugh Hunter says, I worry that many more will find a source of sorrow in their decision to be vaccinated. But we're not there yet. Today we have patriotic truckers venting their frustration in the only way they have left. The powerful, including what was once the conservative press, have already formed their counter-narrative. The people who yawned through BLM chaos and a wave of church burning are now claiming the moral high ground because they have conveniently discovered a few, to date he says I've heard of exactly two, extreme voices in a crowd of tens of thousands of peaceful protesters. They think these voices should drown out the ordinary families who just want to be allowed to live their lives. So the powerful aren't yet willing to listen. And maybe the only way to get them to listen or to get through to them is to lean on the horn. Again, this is Dr. Hugh Hunter. I have a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I think he says it well. And again, I think it may be tough going for those who are willing to make this stand at this time. I'm absolutely convinced they are on the right side of things, and time will show this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. They are a wonderful sponsor, and of course, if you have any interest in sewing, this is the place you need to go to get yourself taken care of. They sell cuddles fabric. Now, I've not seen this or, or, or worn it myself. I guess I'm just not a cuddly kind of guy, but um, this is comparable to like the minky sort of uh, plush, warm. Stuff you'd want, you know, when, when the weather's cool or you just need to feel comfortable. They also sell the most handy quilter long arm machines for a reason. They have great deals on these machines and, of course, the best service all the time. 
They can help you set up your machine. They can train you how to use your quilting machine. These are awesome tools. And it's important that you have somebody to call when you're trying to get that next amazing quilt finished. In fact, Teresa, who is uh, one of the owners of Sewing and Quilting Center, doesn't just know how to operate the machine. She's also a certified technician. Now, if you haven't ever looked into this, you know, sewing machines start as low as $199. From there, it can go up to, you know, the sky's the limit. They also have Baby Lock. That's their top brand for sewing and embroidery projects. And Brother for people who want to start an embroidery business at home. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. There's a link in the show notes. Click on it. See if, see if they can help you. You know, the more that people in authority struggle to contain our perceptions of reality, the more apparent their desperation becomes. I want to thank Ruben for sharing this article with me yesterday. This is from Charles Hughes Smith, How Empires Die. And what we're seeing happen right in front of us right now, it's, this is something pretty historical. We may not enjoy the fact that we're living through historical times, but here we are. Charles Hugh Smith says, when the state slash empire loses the ability to recognize and solve core problems of security and fairness, it will be replaced by another arrangement that's more adaptable and adept at solving problems. So from a systems perspective, nation states and empires arise when they are superior solutions to security compared to whatever arrangement they replace. So it could be feudalism, warlords, tribal confederations, etc., He says, states and empires fail when they are no longer the solution. They are the problem. As the book, The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization explains, when the dissolution of the state or empire becomes the pain-reducing solution, the inhabitants withdraw their support, and the empire loses its grip and expires. Now, I want to make clear, I'm not going to say that's exactly what's happening right now. But I'm going to also float the possibility, could that be happening right now? Because there's a part of me that says, yeah, I think it is. Charles Hugh Smith says, as I explained in my new book, Global Crisis, National Renewal, states and markets are problem-solving structures. These structures solve problems by optimizing adaptability and beneficial synergies that reinforce one another as evolutionary advances. So, for instance, the rise of the middle class is an example of beneficial synergies. As this new class gains access to credit, expertise, trade, enterprise, and pricing power for their labor, they have the means to transform their labor into capital by earning savings and then investing that capital in assets, new enterprises, etc., which then generate income from capital which fuels synergistic increases in credit, expertise, assets, and income from investments. States and empires fail and expire when they elevate the fatal synergies created by self-serving elites. Rather than encourage the dynamics of adaptation and competition, transparency, accountability, experimentation, and dissent, the elites suppress these forces as threats to their monopolies, their cartels, and their wealth. Stripped of adaptability and beneficial synergies, the state empire is no longer able to solve problems. In fact, it becomes the problem which cannot be resolved. A key dynamic fueling fatal synergies is the hubristic confidence that low-cost abundance is a birthright bestowed by the state or empire. So resources can be endlessly squandered on excess and extremes of consumption and waste. The state empire no longer focuses on securing the material sources of security like food, energy, etc. 
or the accountability, competition, dissent, and transparency required to solve systemic problems. Instead, the state-slash-empire dissolves into divisive camps seeking to protect their petty fiefdoms and expanding their wealth at the expense of the populace. The super-wealthy build $500 million yachts and palaces. Politicians trade on their positions to accumulate fortunes, and corruption replaces governance. Markets spiral into fatal synergies as low-quality products and services, speculative excess, extremes of grotesque consumption, and blood-soaked entertainment become growth industries, while blackouts dim electrical grids and store shelves empty of essentials. The market solution to everyone already owning everything is to engineer planned obsolescence into every product and form service sector cartels that then strip services to the bone to juice profits. In other words, the crapification of all goods and services. The state-slash-empire also fails to maintain basic security and functions such as tax collection and a fair enforcement. Petty crimes are exploited by those in power, like civil forfeiture, while resistance to the state is severely punished. There are two legal systems, one for the commoners and another for the elite. The empire, the state-slash-empire, protects those profiting from the status quo and then calls this profiteering a solution. But this profiteering doesn't solve any problems. It is the problem. The self-serving profiteering protects its privileges by corrupting the state, finance, and the economy. Charles Hugh Smith says, for its part, the market seeks to maximize profits in excesses of consumption, predatory lending like student loans, the wholesale destruction of quality by monopolies and cartels, and extremes of speculation. Maximizing profits by any means available has no moral foundation. Predatory student loans are profitable. Obscure medical billing is profitable. Selling products designed to fail is profitable. Declaring software outdated is profitable. Deceiving consumers is profitable and so on. In an endless array of shoddy, unhealthy products, rapacious services, fraudulent overcharges, etc. Now, since problems go unresolved, things fall apart. And the masses veer into extremes of derangement and magical thinking. Fanaticism is substituted for friendship, cults abound, common ground vanishes, and all the failures of the system are papered over with bread and circuses, free money, gaudy entertainments, and lifeless displays of conspicuous consumption that reveal the decay and degradation. He says protecting the few strip-mining the system at the expense of the many is not problem-solving. It adds a layer of problems that the state-slash-empire is incapable of resolving ossified, sclerotic, self-serving, corrupt, focused on virtue signaling and the appearance of tackling problems rather than actually solving problems. Because some sacred cow would lose its privileges and income stream. The state-slash-empire is the problem, not the solution. He says when the state-slash-empire loses the ability to recognize and solve core problems of security and fairness, it will be replaced by another arrangement that's more adaptable and adept at solving problems. Artifice, fantasy, magical thinking, excuses, and absurd cover stories are not part of problem-solving. Problems can only be solved if reality is faced directly. And when reality is unacceptable because it negatively impacts those strip-mining the system for private gain, the state-slash-empire is already on its fatal spiral to collapse. He actually has a really cool graphic that illustrates exactly what he's talking about. 
So again, this is Charles Hugh Smith. I have a link to this note in the show notes at the com. If you uh, are interested, I mean, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into these stories, subscribe to my show notes. It's very, very simple. Go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Click on the show notes feature. In the show notes, you will find a subscribe button. All it's going to ask of you is your email address, which I will not give or sell or lend to anyone else. This is strictly between you and me, but I will drop a copy of these notes in your email inbox every single day that I do this program. Free of charge, no less. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I think one of the big challenges of our time right now is how do you have a productive discussion in an age where there are so many people just looking for a reason to be offended? I mean, I used to refer to them as the professionally aggrieved. These are the ones who are just looking for something, anything by which they can get offended and then trot out in front of the cameras and preen for the crowds and draw attention to themselves and virtue signal about how how superior they are because they are a victim and you must do what I say. It's nothing more than weaponized guilt. How do you have a conversation in a time like that? Well, Joaquin Book has some very applicable information on apologies and hurt feelings. This is from his Medium account. The subtitle here is, You should probably say, I'm sorry you feel that way more often, and reject those who think it's a terrible and hurtful phrase. Joaquin Book says, The thing about apologies has troubled me for months, some months. Some might say for most of my life. He says, Maybe I'm too stubborn. Maybe I'm too narcissistic. Maybe I just don't care about people's feelings that much. Whatever the case, the hatred that the passive-aggressive semi-apology, I'm sorry you feel that way, receives to me, seems mostly undeserved. He says the phrase has its use, contrary to the woke war waged against it. So the Huffington Post runs things like, if you say this during an apology, you're doing it wrong. Psychology Today reports it along with 12 other fake apologies as tools wielded by narcissists. Wikipedia even has an entry called Non-Apology Apology. It reads, saying I'm sorry you feel that way to someone who's been offended by a statement is a non-apology apology. It does not admit there was anything wrong with the remarks made and may imply the person took offense for hypersensitive or irrational reasons. Really? <laughs> what King Book says, as I'm wont to do, as, as I'm wont to do, I argue that this is all, all this is mistaken. He says, the basic premise of my rejection is that the party who has been offended does not have a monopoly on either A, what happened, or B, the values involved in the actions taken or words spoken. It takes two to tango, and symmetry rules. It's hard bridging the gap between minds. Talking to strangers is hard. Talking to friends and loved ones sometimes even harder. There's a gap between intention and interpretation and an overarching disagreement over what's proper behavior. But the woke, culturally sensitive case overlooks all that. Here's what Jane Brody writes in the New York Times. Quote, I admit to a lifetime of challenges when it, came, or when it comes to apologizing. 
especially when I thought I was right or misunderstood or that the offended party was being overly sensitive. But I recently discovered that the need for an apology is less about me than the person who, for whatever reason, is offended by something I did or said or failed to do, regardless of my intentions. End quote. Top sensitivity stuff. The supposed victim's feelings rule. Now, Joaquin Book says, according to Dr. Harriet Lerner, whose book on apologies frequently gets quoted, I'm sorry you feel that way is a way to shift the focus away from the person in error towards the person making the accusation. Precisely. But that's not a lapse in judgment or some obvious crime against humanity, but exactly the point. I'm sorry you feel that way is saying, I care about your emotional well-being and I don't want you to suffer, but I disagree with the charge you've laid at my door. What you say was an error, wasn't an error, or you misread the situation and the intended meaning of my words. And he actually has a nice uh, visual to explain this. It's a game theoretic tool, a four-quadrant box. Upper left corner, I believe I was in error. Lower left corner, I believe you were in error. Upper right corner, we both believe I was in error. Lower right corner, we both believe neither of us were in error. So the four options available in a two-person relationship, or there are four options available, rather, peace, agreement, and two sets of conflict, an innocent one and an aggressive one. So in, in the bottom right corner, we both believe neither of us were in error. This is quadrant four. That's peace. If we both think that our respective words and behavior were not in error, then we're at peace. There's no apology owed. Now, top right, we both believe I was in error. Well, then we both agree that I owe you an apology, and hopefully I will deliver to the best of my sincerest abilities. Apology owed and delivered. Now, the top left quadrant, which is quadrant two, is innocent conflict. If I believe I was in error, but you do not, we're overshooting the mark. I will apologize, and you will brush it away as nothing, believing sincerely there was nothing to apologize for. No apology owed, but one was delivered anyway. The aggressive conflict comes from the bottom left quadrant, quadrant three. This is where all the fuss is, where we disagree over whether an error has been committed and an apology owed. If I believe you wronged me, I think you owe me an apology. You disagree. Either you don't think that my characterization and or feeling of what happened is correct, or you don't think that what happened constitutes an error, at least one worthy of an apology. Apology may or may not be owed, but it hasn't been delivered. Unsettled. <clears throat> now, Joaquin Book says, I'm sorry you feel that way is a phrase for quadrant three. It indicates we're in dispute either over what happened, and there are two perspectives and interpretations equally worthy of respect, or over whether that behavior is an error, like our value systems don't overlap. The rants against that sordid phrase conf confuses a situation of quadrant three with the column to the right, either quadrant one or quadrant four, and the people who righteously write about the horrid people who apologized with this phrase think we're in a situation of agreement when we're actually not. Your assessment of values of what happened are not universally true just because you feel them. It's a case of mistaken category. When somebody says, I'm sorry you feel that way, it's a message that you disagree over whether errors were committed. It's a conflict of values or interpretations, but one where the accused still cares for your well-being and wishes to maintain a relationship. 
It's a phrase that says, I disagree with your reading of the situation, or I disagree with the values that made you take offense, but that I'm still interested in maintaining our relationship, and I want to make sure we can still do that. Now, that last part is crucial. So he has another schematic graph, and to the left is the area where there's this clear break that most of us have experienced at some point where the relationship falls apart. One person says or does something so unforgivable to the other that the parties can no longer coexist. So here's what it says. When, when someone says that in the area of disagreement, I'm sorry you feel that way, to the left it says there is some point beyond which the relationship cannot be salvaged. One party passed a point where the other no longer has interest in upholding the relationship. When it ends, no apologies are owed or the ones that the other party thinks are owed are not recognized. Now, in the right-hand column, it could be handled like this. There are some minor conflicts where even though I think I'm right and no apology is owed, I will apologize because it's not worth the hassle to me. Most couples can think of instances like this, perhaps even celebrate them as, meaning of compro- as the meaning of compromise, of negotiating life together where values and opinions differ slightly. So that area to the right, that's the area of negotiation beyond which lies blissful coexistence. Well, King Book says, I may disagree with the values or the interpretation, but the conflict is so minor that I'm happy to give in. I'll apologize unconditionally because I value the continuation of this relationship more than whatever the type of conflict is. Over time, my values will probably align with yours. I'm sorry you feel that way is what occupies the space in between these two extremes. So where you still want to maintain the relationship as it were before the conflict, but can't accept or give in to the value system or and or interpretation of events. After all, one party does not have the monopoly on truth. The other person's value systems do not unilaterally decide what is <clears throat> and isn't acceptable behavior. Then again, having the ability to admit or even to contemplate that oneself is mistaken is an ability short on stock these days, no matter what. Or so, or so no wonder, rather. Now, there's much more to this. It's a, it's a fairly uh, detailed article, but I, I think it's worth your time. And I would ask you to consider it. I think he, he is making a great case here. This isn't just, you know, trying to excuse away somebody else's feelings. When is the last time you found yourself at odds with someone and said to them something along the lines of, I love you or I value our relationship more than I need to win this argument. I know it's hard to do. That's the, that part he was talking about where people are willing to really look at themselves and say, can I humble myself? Even if you clearly know I'm not in the wrong here, but I value keeping our family united more so than simply, you know, holding out to prove this point. I mean, I can't tell you where that line lies. I can't tell you, you know, where where do you draw the line on this? That's something you're going to have to come up with. But as I'm looking at the bigger picture, looking at all the different things that have to be taken into consideration, you skip ahead to the end of your life and ask yourself, you know, was it worth it? I think I would rather err on the side of maintaining and, and keeping relationships intact assuming they're not, you know, toxic, harmful relationships, more so than I would just simply want to win so that I could prove and everybody could know that I was right, you know, and go to their grave knowing that I was right. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by lifesavingfood.com. I look around me and I think uh, food storage has never made more sense than right now. And you know what? It's always actually made sense. Come on, look back to grandma and grandpa. Anyone who lived through the Great Depression, you know, you notice how uh, there was a time when it was considered, you know, the responsible, normal thing to do to uh, grow your own foods in your garden, to can and preserve those foods and put them up for the winter. Maybe grandma had, you know, dozens of quart or pint jars of various things, pickles and so forth. It wasn't because they were a bunch of doomsday, you know, prophets, or they weren't just, you know, freaking out over the impending apocalypse. It was just the understanding that we all bear responsibility for taking care of ourselves. And sometimes there are disruptions, there are interruptions, not just to the supply chain, but to our lives. Lifesavingfood.com does everything possible to make it easy for you to get your food storage program underway if you're just getting started or to keep it shored up and all the gaps filled in if you already have a food storage program. Now, they take good care of my listeners, so I want to brag on them a bit here. When you order through Life Saving Food, you get not only food with a nice, stable 25-year shelf life, but you also get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. So please consider clipping or clicking on the link in my show notes at the com. That's lifesavingfood.com. I can't speak for everybody, but I will speak for myself when I tell you that those of us who are skeptical about the fervency with which the COVID-19 vaccines have been pushed on the public, I think we have a lot of reasons to be grateful that we held out. And watching the science, I'm putting that in air quotes, change just for political expediency, that's the tip of the iceberg. Got a great article in front of me from Donald J. Boudreau. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research on skepticism of COVID-19 vaccines. He says, tennis star Novak Djokovic famously, or depending on your perspective, infamously refused to get vaccinated against COVID-19 as a condition for entering Australia to play in the Australian Open. Djokovic's uh, refusal prompted National Review's Kevin Williamson and Charles Cook to engage each other in an online debate over the merits of government-mandated COVID vaccination. vaccination. Williamson finds such mandates to be less objectionable than Cook does, especially because each man is thoughtful and principled, reading their exchange is worthwhile, and he does link to it. This issue is a serious one and must be dealt with accordingly, as is done by Williamson and Cook. Now, the Williamson-Cook exchange prompted Washington University economist Ian Fillmore to share his thoughts with Donald J. Boudreau about vaccination mandates. So here's part of an email that he recently received from Ian, which he shares with his kind permission. Ian says, I've seen the argument you didn't oppose hepatitis A vaccine mandates in the past, so why are you so upset about mandating the COVID vaccine? It's a fair point, and my unsatisfactory answer is that while they made me uneasy, I kept my mouth shut because everyone seemed to be going along with it. How harmful is a mandate that no one minds obeying? It would have seemed chaotic to take a principled stand against a mandate that almost no one minded, and the few objectors could usually get exempted from in one way or another. 
The holdouts weren't going to hurt my kids because we were up to date on our vaccines. And I didn't give it much more thought than that. Well, now we have a larger chunk of the population that doesn't want to take a vaccine. He says, I think vaccines are terrific, set boosters aside, and should have been our ticket back to full normalcy in early 2021. Ian says, most people agree with me and got vaccinated months ago. Some disagree, and that doesn't bother me at all. They're taking on a greater risk of severe illness or death from COVID, and that's their choice to make. Since I'm vaccinated, their choice to forego vaccination doesn't affect me. This is especially true now that it turns out the vaccines are not so effective at preventing spread. As an economist, I would say that the vaccines have essentially eliminated the externalities of COVID. As a human being, I would say that the vaccines allow us all to make our own choices and mind our own business. More generally, I'm amazed by how quick humans are to abandon persuasion in favor of coercion. Some people aren't persuaded to take the vaccine and we treat it like it's their fault for not being persuaded. Well, maybe it's your fault for not persuading them. But no, we give it the old college try with some public health messaging, and then we start dropping the hammer with mandates. End quote. Now, Charles Boudreau says, Ian's email radiates wisdom. He says, I especially admire his willingness to admit uncertainty about the justification of mandating COVID-19 vaccination in light of the fact that governments already, in a variety of forms and circumstances, require some vaccinations. He, of course, goes on in his email to offer some excellent reasons to oppose mandated vaccination against COVID. So he says, let me here offer some additional reasons. From the start of COVID, the scientists and bureaucrats who were treated as virtually infallible by the media and by most governments embarked on a journey featuring some notable U-turns. Anthony Fauci's 180-degree flipperoo on the advisability of wearing masks is the most famous of these. In light of such reversals, who can blame people for being skeptical of assurances offered about both the effectiveness and safety of vaccines by the likes of Fauci? A related problem is the record of deceits, dodges, and half-truths practiced by many who are in power. Fauci and Francis Collins clearly were not forthcoming about the role played by the NIH in funding, if only indirectly, research done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Far worse is the effort by Fauci and Collins to orchestrate a scheme to discredit the scientists who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. Why shouldn't the general public be wary of proclamations made about vaccines by government officials who are fearful of open scientific debate? Why shouldn't the public be leery of following the advice of officials who deride as fringe scholars who are tenured in scientific departments at Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard? a derision motivated by nothing more than Collins and Fauci's fear of these prominent scholars' public objections to the unprecedented use of general lockdowns and other authoritarian measures. Donald Boudreau says, There are too too many to count instances of hypocrisy by those who loudly insisted on draconian COVID restrictions. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's now infamous party gate, Gavin Newsom's soiree at the French Laundry, Neil Ferguson's clandestine visit with his mistress, Matt Hancock's not socially distanced, passionate embrace in an elevator of his mistress, Muriel Bowser's trip to Delaware to celebrate Joe Biden's election, Deborah Birx's Thanksgiving 2020 visit with her family, Nancy Pelosi's hair salon episode, San Francisco Mayor London Breed's maskless partying, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio dancing in Times Square with his wife on New Year's Eve 2020. 
This list of high-level politicians and government advisors' refusal to follow their own orders and advice can be extended. And he says, in light of such a list, is it any surprise that not a few members of the general public distrust government officials and their advisors' affirmations of the safety and effectiveness of COVID vaccines? And he says, looming especially large for me are three other telling realities of the past two years. One is that public health experts' consensus until late 2019 for dealing with pandemics was almost instantly discarded in early 2020. Further, those who publicly continued to endorse this pre-2020 consensus were vilified. How can that which was a consensus view in late 2019 be a dangerous superstition in early 2020? Second, most governments and prominent advisors push for vaccination as if COVID's consequences don't have a very distinct age profile. Now, he says, I can well understand why vaccine hesitancy rises when the public encounters high-profile officials and advisors who press for vaccination as if COVID is as dangerous to 15-year-olds as it is to 75-year-olds. Because this refusal to acknowledge COVID's distinct age profile is obviously unscientific, why should advice about vaccines issued by people who refuse to acknowledge this age profile be treated as scientific? And there could be a similar point made about their continuing disparagement of natural immunity. Third, as we Americans have repeatedly been told for the past 60 years that private companies are untrustworthy if left inadequately regulated by government. <laughs> Specifically, we were taught to distrust pharmaceuticals and medical devices that are not meticulously reviewed and approved by the Food and Drug Administration and found to be safe, safe and effective. That review process typically takes a long time, on average, 10 years. Yet since COVID-19 arrived, the public has witnessed unusually speedy development and approval of a vaccine to combat a novel, a novel coronavirus. Rather, While I've long believed that the market forces in tort law are sufficient to keep pharmaceutical companies honest and responsive, meaning there's no need for an FDA, he says my view has also long been derided as reckless. And although my own research assures me it is the Moderna vaccine that I received that's likely of net value to me as a 63-year-old, he says, I can't criticize the many people who've observed the unprecedented speed of the vaccine's development and approval and who worry that these medicines are not sufficiently safe to inject into their and their children's bodies. Bottom line is the vaccination against COVID is today insisted upon with the same fervor that religious zealots centuries ago exhibited when insisting upon the truths of their particular dogmas. Well said. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are determined to think clearly and independently. Now, that does not mean people who are determined to parrot whatever Brian is sharing on his show on a particular day, but rather those who recognize that uh, you've got to be willing to stray outside the box of conventional wisdom 
and be willing to do some of your own digging and your own homework in order to really understand the world around us. And I'm going to take it one step further. It's not enough just to understand the world around us, nod thoughtfully, perhaps stroke your beard and go, "Mm mm-hmm, yes, yes, very interesting. The reason we want to understand what's happening around us is so that we are better equipped to deal with it and to use our personal influence as individuals as wisely as possible wherever we happen to be standing. I'm just going to be blunt. I think you and I were born for times such as this. I believe that you and I each have a personal destiny to fulfill. And with God's help, I believe we will fulfill that. Now, I get it. Not everybody wants to think that way. I mean, that's almost guaranteed. You're going to, uh, you're going to be feeling some, some suffering for your beliefs. It's true. You, you probably will. But I'm going to come back to that idea. With God's help, though, everything is possible. And with God's help, that's kind of been the pattern. You know, people who, who partner with their creator to, to live up to what they were born to become, They often do have to suffer along the way. It's part of the process of becoming a truly great human being. So embrace it. Know that uh, God sees you with greater confidence than you see yourself. May we each learn to see ourselves a little more clearly, or at least a little more in the same way that God sees us. All right. Thus endeth the Sunday School lesson. I have some great sponsors who make this program possible, including MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. thought we could start out this hour with a little talk about the growing war against disinformation. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security, it sounds like they are just flat up leaning into the First Amendment. Meaning, if you dissent against whoever is in power at the moment, you could very easily find yourself accused of being a terrorist of some sort, or starting with extremist, but it's leaning towards terrorism. How dare we question what those who rule us or who want to rule us tell us? James Bovard actually has some excellent reasons why everybody should doubt the information from Joe Biden's government. And a great example, too. At a State Department briefing last week... Team Biden spokesman Ned Price chided an Associated Press reporter who wanted some evidence for his claims on Russia. I'm sorry that you're doubting the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. Now, James Bovard says this epitomizes the administration's attitude towards the press and the public. President Joe Biden and his appointees talk as if Americans are obliged to trust him solely because he won the November 2020 election. In his inaugural address last year, Biden proclaimed... Each of us has a duty and responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders to defend the truth and defeat the lies. In his April speech to Congress, Biden declared, America is rising anew, choosing truth over lies. But the effusions of Biden's speechwriters have zilch effect on his administration's conduct. On his first full day in office, Biden released his national strategy for the COVID-19 response and pandemic preparedness. Goal one was to rebuild the trust of the American people by promising transparency in federal health and scientific policy. That pledge was quickly discarded like a forgotten campaign promise. Though a Biden memo promised to end improper political interference in the work of federal scientists, the Food and Drug Administration's top vaccine experts resigned in protest 
last fall over White House pressure to rubber stamp COVID booster shots for all adults. The FDA is seeking to delay fully disclosing Pfizer's application for COVID vaccine approval for 75 years. There's a vote of confidence in what they're doing. James Bovard also writes the uh, Centers for Disease Control covered up the vast majority of so-called breakthrough infections among fully vaccinated individuals, thereby enabling Biden to falsely claim last July that people who got vaxxed would not get COVID. The press promised in September that every American can access free and convenient tests, but New Yorkers in recent months faced hellish challenges and long delays to find COVID tests. In December, Biden issued an executive order to rebuild trust in government by transforming federal customer experience and service delivery from the Social Security Administration and other agencies. But Biden is failing as badly as Mussolini did when he promised to make the trains run on time. Now, the Washington Post recently reported that SSA offices, local offices, have been shut for more than 600 days as its staffers stay at home, imposing hardships on millions of people who need to apply for benefits, apply for a card or otherwise, and wounding many of those in need of its services, in greatest need of its services. Disability advocates and congressional Republicans contend that the Biden administration is kowtowing to its unions in allowing the closures. The paper noted, and offices will remain closed until at least mid-April. Even Senate Democrats such as Ron Wyden are raising hell about it. Biden and his appointees are saber-rattling against Russia, claiming that any incursion into Ukraine would violate that nation's territorial rights. For the Biden team, borders are sacrosanct, except for those in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, where the administration continues to permit vast numbers of illegal aliens to enter this nation. Biden's Ukraine policy has been draped in even more secrecy than Hunter Biden's emails to the U.S. government, which the New York Times is suing the State Department to disclose under the Freedom of Information Act. Bovard says Biden's transparency pledges have not deterred his Justice Department from invoking the state secrets doctrine to cover up CIA torture and FBI entrapment schemes, including covert bedroom recordings of seduced Muslim women. The state secrets doctrine presumes government knows best and no one else is entitled to know Biden's former boss uh, to know. Rather, Biden's former boss, President Barack Obama, pioneered a vast expansion of state secrets, a Nixonian abuse that did not deter the media from sainting Obama. Even Biden's director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, lamented to Congress last month that current excessive secrecy, the current excessive secrecy of federal documents erodes the basic trust that our citizens have in their government. But under Biden, federal agencies continue creating trillions of pages of new secrets each year. Secrecy and lying are two sides of the same political coin. James Bovard says it is folly to presume that a Biden statement on any policy is more honest than his lie about being arrested at a civil rights demonstration, his lies about Jim Crow election laws, and his lies about the Second Amendment. Even a recent CNN poll found that only 34% of Americans believe Biden is a leader you can trust. Now, the Biden administration won't come clean on the facts without far more pressure from the public, the media, Congress, and the courts. Citizens cannot defer to Biden's unsubstantiated assertions without forfeiting more of their rights, liberty, and prosperity. Happily, 
more Americans have become too savvy to bow to federal officials, commanding them to trust us. So says James Bovard. I don't spend very much time in my day trying to figure out or to follow what's going on in Washington, D.C. But when I do want to know, James Bovard is the guy that I turn to simply because he has a very healthy sense of skepticism. He has many years of experience in working in and around the system. And he is, uh, he's unflinchingly truthful. Like, I'm sure the powers that be, they, they get nervous every time they see, what, Bovard's published another one? Oh, great. <laughs> they know that uh, the cover is being pulled back on what, <laughs> excuse me, whatever secret deeds they happen to be doing. I would caution you, as good as it is to be informed and to be aware of what's happening in, in the political world, it also becomes really easy to marinate in all the negativity and, and to, to find it to soaking into you. So I would strongly encourage you, limit how much mainstream or, uh, yeah, limit how much mass media you consume. Limit how much you, uh, you fixate on what's happening in, in the Beltway. Yes, I know the, the news media pretends that it's the most important thing that's happening anywhere in the world. And did you hear what someone said about someone else? And this tweet, that tweet. And, you know, it's, there's so much melodrama. I mean, they, they give junior high girls a run for their money. So keep your head on a swivel. Pay attention to what's going on around you. But if you really want to be happy, don't wallow in it. It's never gonna it's it's never gonna have as great a return as you're hoping for. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being a part of our audience, a growing audience of wrong thinkers, both far and near. If you'd like to subscribe to the show notes, click on the subscribe link at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'll drop a copy into your email inbox every morning. Let's talk about reparations. Now, I know this can be a tricky subject, right? Reparations, did you feel a knee-jerk? I know I do pretty much every time it comes up. Ideally, reparations are something that should be made to people who have actually suffered a measurable harm, and they should be made by the people who actually caused that harm. Now, of course, I'm not talking about slavery, but that rule would still apply. But let's talk about reparations for the business victims of the COVID lockdowns. Here's a great article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. He says, with pandemic controls gradually ending, many people have called for some kind of justice to be realized. Investigations on the origin and implementation of lockdowns and mandates, punishment for the perpetrators, and compensation for the victims. And he says, how wonderful it would be. And yet, I tend to agree with Clarence Darrow, who wrote that the state has no means to dispense pure justice in the Aristotelian sense. It cannot undo wrongs, repay costs sufficient to restore what it has destroyed, or punish people enough to alleviate the suffering it wrought. It's also the worst possible institution to be charged with such a task. 
it's implausible to believe that the perpetrator can be trusted with the task of restitution. Now, Tucker says there is no making up for two years of lost education and art, no means to revive the hundreds of thousands of businesses, one-third of all small businesses, that were forced to close, and no path to restore the life hopes of millions that were so cruelly shattered. There is no fixing those whose cancers were not treated when hospitals were closed to routine screenings, and no way to bring back those who died alone without friends or family because their loved ones had to comply with stay-at-home orders. The damage is done. The carnage is all around us. Nothing can change that. We can hope for truth and honesty, but longing for pure justice is futile. That realization makes the pandemic response even more morally objectionable. If, however, we think of lockdown reparations as consisting of some form of compensation, there could be a path for a new crop of political leaders to pursue. Now, there is precedent for this. The U.S. government did pay reparations to those victimized in Japanese internment camps during World War II. Germany was forced to pay reparations after World War I. Of course, that did not end well. And the very ideas baked into the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Well, lockdowns seem like a taking as described by the Constitution. Governments took private property from millions of business owners, churches, schools, and families. They took control of hospitals, gyms, recreational centers, meeting locations, skating rinks, movie theaters, libraries, and just about every other business except the big box stores that were deemed essential and non-disease spreading. Now, this was clearly unjust. That the feds doled out low-interest loans and so on to sustain many hardly makes up for taking away the right to do business. Even if you believe all this taking was necessary for public use, there's still the job of compensation. But the trouble is that the payer, namely government, has no resources of its own. Everything it pays it gets from taxing, borrowing, or inflating, all of which comes out of the productivity of others, which means even more taking. It also doesn't seem right to take the compensation fund even from the big businesses that got rich during the lockdowns, simply because they did, in fact, provide a valuable service. As Richard Epstein, author of Takings, Private Property, and the Power of Eminent Domain, points out, the core idea behind the Takings Clause is that the state can seize private property only when doing so solves some market failure, such as a free rider or holdout problem. This supposedly generates a surplus of wealth from which the expropriated victims can be compensated so that the act of taking, at least in theory, makes everyone better off or at least no worse off. But the lockdowns and related mandates did not create wealth or solve any market failures. They were pure acts of destruction. The lockdowns only did damage. They did not generate any surplus wealth from which the victims can be compensated. This is, in fact, one reason Epstein would strictly limit the state's power of eminent domain to situations where there are clear gains, like highways and so forth. So Jeffrey Tucker says, My suggestion then is to let the compensation, the reparations, take the form of relief from continued impositions of high taxes, mandates, and regulations, particularly as they affect small businesses, which were the hardest hit from the pandemic lockdowns. 
In other words, to make up for the wrongs done and to rebuild a vibrant small business sector, the owners need to be emancipated from the bureaucratic tangles, taxes, and demands that have tightened over the decades. The burden of government, according to the American Action Forum, five years ago cost small business 3.3 billion hours and 64.6 billion per year. Small businesses must comply with more than 379 hours of paperwork annually, or nearly the equivalent of 10 full-time work weeks. Well, the numbers are undoubtedly higher now, as any small business owner can tell you. Highly capitalized and larger companies can bear these burdens much easier, which is one reason they exist in the first place. Such interventions forestall the realization of genuine competition and entrench an elite class within an enterprise. And this was made vastly worse during lockdowns, where the privilege of staying open was allocated to those with political connections, while independent businesses were slammed shut. How to compensate? Well, this is my proposal in short. All businesses with fewer than 1,000 employees should be exempt from all federal corporate taxes. That's 21%. All FICA taxes and all other expensive and arduous mandated benefits, including health care mandates, for a period of 10 years. Now, he says, ideally, I would make it longer, but I'm trying to think about political viability. This would not restore what was lost, but it could provide some compensation for those that managed to survive and provide an excellent and fertile ground for new business. This would also have symbolic value clearly showing an awareness of the egregious attack on small business that took place over two years. Small businesses are the 99% that employ nearly half the workers in America. A healthy and thriving small business sector is evidence of a society committed to genuine free enterprise versus a cartelized system that favors only large and politically connected corporations. Reparations for them seems like a moderate but essential step. Now, from here, he walks through some of the different objections. The lockdowns were imposed mostly by the states, not the federal government. He says, well, that's technically true, but only because the federal government doesn't have the means to enact a lockdown. FICA taxes help the worker in removing that mandate that small business pays only hurts workers. Actually, he says workers pay the whole bill in an economic sense, so eliminating these taxes could end up boosting wages and helping millions of people make the transitions to private savings as opposed to the pathetic Social Security system. Eliminating federal corporate taxes will also translate into higher wages and greater profitability all around. Another objection, eliminating the health care mandate will harm workers. Well, actually, he says it's workers who pay the premiums out of their wages and salaries despite the illusion. Allowing businesses to opt out would allow each worker to make a decision about what kind of package they want to purchase if they want to do so at all. Here's one final objection. It's not fair to offer this to small businesses but not to large ones. Plus, it punishes business with businesses with 1,500 employees and grants favors to those with 1,000 or less employees. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says that's true. But the cutoff has to be somewhere. And because it is small businesses that were harmed the most they should be first in line for compensation. Most of the big businesses did gain an advantage in the marketplace during lockdowns, so this discriminatory approach, while very imperfect, seems to recognize that. Bottom line is, the lockdowns were and are an intolerable attack on property rights, the freedom of association, free enterprise, and the basic rights of trade and exchange. And they were also without precedent on this scale. Somebody needs to pay. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I would like to thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, for being one of my sponsors and helping make it possible for me to do this program on a daily basis. And I hope that you will show them some love. If you are in the market for a home loan, you should talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Why? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Heather has has decades of experience in the lending industry, and she also clearly understands the ins and outs of what the lender needs, what the borrower needs. She is on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Look at the current real estate market. Look at the look at how competitive it is. You don't have time to spare when it comes to getting your VA loan, your traditional loan, your reverse mortgage, even refinancing your existing home loan. You know, she can make it happen quickly. And if you're looking to buy a home, you know, you need to act quickly. You can't wait or someone will buy it right out from under you. To contact the Heather Turner team, here are a few ways you can do so. I provide a link in my show notes. You can just click on that. It'll take you right to her email. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the uh, Freedom Trucker, the Truckers uh, Freedom Convoy. I forget. I don't know what to call it. Anyway, the Truckers, the Freedom Truckers and... First thing I want to talk about is uh, them versus the GoFundMe leftists. Now, if you got my show notes yesterday, you saw the meme that, that I had shared. In fact, I'm, I'm going to bring this up just because I, I, want to, I want to make sure I get the wording right. You know that there were those who had donated to these truckers, I believe over about a three-week period. They amassed $10 million in donations. And then GoFundMe at the behest of police officials and others, stepped up and canceled the trucker's money. They took it away and initially said, well, we're going to take it and we're going to, you know, if, if people don't ask for refunds, then we'll just give whatever money remains to charities that we deem legitimate. Here's what the meme that I shared in my show notes yesterday says. The GoFundMe cancellation of the trucker's money should make you all aware of how a cashless society will work. The government gets mad at you, and they wipe out your money. The end. Think they can't get mad at you? You're a good citizen? Welcome to the social credit system. This is really powerful stuff. Probably a little disturbing, but this is why all this push towards a cashless society, or worse, a purely digital currency that is controlled by central banks Not a place you want to go unless you are content with living under legitimate, or I mean true, economic fascism. How quickly you can become an unperson, incapable of filling your car up or buying food or paying your rent. Kind of a scary thought. Betsy McCaughey, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a great piece on freedom truckers versus the GoFundMe leftists. She says, when GoFundMe shut down funding Friday for the Truckers Freedom Convoy, it didn't just clobber Canadian rig drivers. It dealt a blow to the rights of Americans. 
Silicon Valley executives are trying to limit the causes Americans support, favoring leftists and canceling conservatives. Now, she says, we Americans have a constitutionally protected right to donate money to whatever causes we choose. The Supreme Court ruled so in Buckley v. Vallejo. Money funds political activity and limiting where we can donate is like gagging our speech. Canadian truckers launched a convoy to Ottawa last month to protest Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's vaccine mandate on all rig drivers. Never mind the absurdity of requiring a truck driver alone behind the wheel for 18 hours a day to be vaccinated. The convoy set up a fundraise site on GoFundMe to pay for food, fuel, and lodging. Many Americans rushed to support it. It had reached $10 million in donations when GoFundMe pulled the plug. Nearly one quarter of Americans donate on crowdfunding sites, according to Pew Research. GoFundMe is the largest. It's the public square for fundraising, and it should be open to all, regardless of their politics. Yet GoFundMe shuts down fundraising for causes the left doesn't like. That's as dangerous to our democracy as when other Silicon Valley tech giants like Facebook and Twitter silence viewpoints. (laughs) I think she's got a point. The Freedom Convoy reached Ottawa January 29th and has clogged the city streets with 18-wheelers and demonstrators calling for health care freedom and an end to overreaching government COVID mandates. GoFundMe claims it shut down the truckers because of reports of violence and other unlawful activity violating the company's terms of service. That's a joke. Even CNN reports no bloodshed has occurred. The New York Times concedes the worst is snarled traffic and blaring truck horns. As of Friday evening, when GoFundMe permanently shut the site down, there had only been three arrests despite thousands protesting. As of Sunday, police reported more arrests and investigations, but the number is still minuscule overall. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson's biggest complaint is that the truckers are showing insensitivity by creating noise and turning it into a party. Now compare that with the mayhem and violence in Portland, Oregon in 2020. Truth is, GoFundMe had no problem with that disorder. The site raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Portland General Defense Committee to defend rioters who set fire to police stations, vandalized City Hall, wielded weapons, and injured police officers. Even now, GoFundMe is raising money for Black Lives Matter New York City to engage in civil disobedience and disruption. GoFundMe likes BLM's brand of civil disobedience. Now, the framers of the Constitution banned government from censoring, but they didn't anticipate big tech. Democrats are happy to deputize Silicon Valley lefties to muzzle the deplorables and prevent an exchange of ideas and money. Democrats in Congress insist big tech should stamp out misinformation. Trudeau slammed the truckers for spreading misinformation. Well, who decides what is misinformation? Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said the best test of truth is whether it survives in the competition of the market. But Silicon Valley's snuffing out competition. Now, there are two remedies. The first is for Congress to regulate big tech like public utilities or common carriers, compelling them to serve all customers without viewpoint discrimination. Water companies and railroads can't deny service to customers with unpopular opinions. Big tech should operate by the same rules. Unfortunately, such legislation is unlikely to pass. 
About half of Democratic members' stock holdings are in big tech, compared with only 14% for Republicans. I didn't know that before. That's, that's an interesting statistic. The second remedy is the Supreme Court. It's possible the majority will limit big tech censorship when a case arises. In April of 2021, Justice Clarence Thomas warned in a concurring opinion that the CEOs of the social media giants, a mere handful of executives, have the power to exclude even a president of the United States from the digital public square. Now, Thomas appears poised to rule that the First Amendment bans censorship not only by government, but also by social media. GoFundMe's attack on the Freedom Convoy is the latest red flag that Silicon Valley's power over us has to be stopped. Again, these are the words of Betsy McCaughey in an article published on intellectualtakeout.org. Now, I have a lot of friends who are very libertarian in their thinking. And I know that to the reaction on the part of many is, well, now it's a private business and, you know, private businesses can do whatever they want. You don't like it? Take your business somewhere else. And I would have agreed with that once upon a time. <clears throat> I would have full, full-heartedly said, yes, this is, uh, this is true. If you don't like it, go build a better mousetrap and, you know, vote with your wallet. But I believe there is a line that is being crossed here. And, and here's where it gets a little bit muddy for me. When big tech is actively doing the bidding of certain political leaders, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, I think they are ceasing to act as a private company. Call it what you want, but they they are in partnership with government in that they are both pushing for the same thing at the expense of people's rights. And I don't know that they deserve to be considered as a private company at that point. Now, on the other hand, and I'm willing to consider the possibility, you know, maybe they're being coerced by government to do so. After all, we've seen Congress pull in these heads of these big tech companies and tell them, you need to do something about this or else. In other words, threatening, we will flex our regulatory muscles and force you to do things or punish you in ways that only we can. But the appearance, and and it's just, you know, this is my subjective uh, take on it, it looks like these companies are going along very willingly. I don't see them fighting the good fight and, you know, begging the public, help us, you know, to stand independent and, and clearly, you know, free of government interference. They obviously are getting some benefit from their relationship with government. Maybe it's the monopoly status they enjoy. I don't know. Either way, though, I don't think they deserve that... Uh, little shield of but it's a private business not when you're in bed with big brother it's not this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all right we are back final segment of the show today Thank you for uh, hanging with me through all this. I know there's a lot of focus on the uh, Canadian truckers right now. And I think this is worth keeping an eye on because it, it appears that the the, the moxie, sorry, that, that doesn't sound like that great of a word. Ah, oh, they have such moxie, but the, the what's it, what else? Got it? The balls of these guys. No, I don't know. The, the people who have stood up in Canada, the truckers who have actually uh, made this stand for freedom have been inspiring to people everywhere. 
And it's, you know, America, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking around American gun owners, you know. How often have you had to bend the knee? Well, okay, I guess I'll just follow and comply with this law or that law, you know. No matter how ill-advised, you know, the Canadian truckers, they, they have reason to look down on us. I mean, we, we could have stood up many times and we have not, but they're doing it, and it appears that their courage is catching. And if you're trying to stay informed on what's going on on these Freedom Truckers' efforts in Canada... Aiden Tate from The Organic Prepper has a terrific write-up. And he brings you the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I love that he's uh, he's actually got links and especially videos that go along with this that uh, you can also follow to keep yourself better informed. So the title of this article is Ottawa Cops Stole Gas, Lied to the Press, Arrested People, But the Freedom Convoy Remains. And there's some pretty hinky stuff going on on the part of law enforcement. I'm not trying to tar all police officers with this, but the officers who are just following orders are not representations of the best of humanity. They probably would be loath to admit it, or maybe they're just scared they're going to lose their pension or something. But uh, they are they are part of the problem. They are not on the right side of of uh, right and wrong. They're simply on the side of coercion and presumably doing what they're doing because they believe, well, you know, we've got the power, we've got the guns, I guess you know, we're hopefully we're the we're the winning side. But I don't think it's written in stone that they are. Aiden Tate says Ottawa police recently engaged in a widespread thing, string of thefts of privately purchased gasoline and propane throughout the city in an attempt to drive the freedom convoy out of the city. Apparently, Section 8 of the uh, Charter of Rights in Canada reads, everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search or seizure. And yet, without a search warrant, here's this video of cops seizing gas cans right and left. So that would be theft, right? I mean, governments are used to violating our privacy now, aren't they, says Ezra Levant. And the media love it. Aiden Tate says also there was a state of emergency declared. This came out shortly after the Ottawa mayor, Jim Watson, declared a state of emergency on February 6th. It was then that Watson said the situation at this point is completely out of control because individuals with the protest are calling the shots. They have far more people than we have police officers, and I've indicated to the chief that we have to be much more nimble and proactive when it comes to these activities. Watson went on to say, we are outnumbered and we are losing this battle right now. And he went on to add, we are in the midst of a serious emergency, the most serious emergency our city has ever faced. And we need to cut the red tape to get these supplies available to our police officers and to our public work staff. Now, declaring a state of emergency reflects a serious danger and threat to the safety and security of residents posed by the ongoing demonstrations and highlights the need for support from other jurisdictions and levels of government. That's a statement from the city of Ottawa. So it appears that Ottawa is potentially calling for federal troops to enter the scene. Other sources seem to confirm this notion, and Aiden Tate links to those other sources. Shortly after the state of emergency was declared by the Ottawa mayor, the Ottawa Police Department sent out this tweet. Anyone attempting to bring material support, gas, etc., food, and so forth, to the demonstrators could be subject to arrest. Enforcement is underway. And then the arrests began. 
About 9 o'clock that night, the Ottawa Police Department Department reported they'd made multiple arrests, having seized multiple vehicles as well as fuel. Members of the Freedom Convoy were frequently charged with things like mischief or hate crimes. Note uh, those nice, ambiguous terms that can be a catch-all for whatever we want. Transporting fuel into the Freedom Convoy was enough of a penalty to be slapped with a mischief charge. By the way, to their credit, there are videos of tons of people, children and old people alike, everybody carrying a gas can. Now, many of these gas cans are obviously empty. But what a great show of solidarity against, you know, this this ridiculous clampdown on the part of officialdom. Other infractions that members of the convoy were charged with included not wearing a seatbelt. Ooh, wow, they're saving the public from that kind of a crime, aren't they? Uh, Having a defective muffler or excessive honking. (laughs) At approximately 7 p.m., the uh, Ottawa Police Department had stolen 3,200 liters of fuel from the Freedom Convoy out of a parking lot. Then they began dismantling much of the Freedom Convoy's logistics camp as well. Now, there are some reports surfacing that claim an Ottawa judge ordered the police to return what they have stolen. This has not been confirmed as of yet. Another rumor that's currently being floated about is that there's soon to be a mass arrest planned for members of the Freedom Convoy. Federal officers have been scouring Ottawa, gathering as much information about members of the convoy as possible. The OPD set out a statement Sunday afternoon stating overnight demonstrators exhibited extremely disruptive and unlawful behavior. Sorry, that's an English accent, uh, which presented risks to public safety and unacceptable distress for Ottawa residents. Oh, geez. Drama? Much? However, Canadians have stated that the allegations of disruptive and unlawful behavior are being fabricated. Allegations of dancing on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier have been made by Ottawa officials. And Canadians responded, we were actually shoveling the snow off of that memorial. Look at these extremists, this one video shows, oppressing all that snow. Justin Trudeau made the right choice by hiding in his basement from these radicals, shoveling snow and picking up garbage. Also, the Ottawa police have dismantled the Freedom Convoy's food kitchen. They built a small wooden shed to serve food to Canadians out of. The Ottawa PD removed it in an effort to force the members of the Freedom Convoy to move on. Now, here's the kicker. Nobody was being charged for the food. It was being freely given away to anyone in the area, yet it was removed. One person tweeted, There's a homeless man parked at the corner of Wellington and Mackenzie Drive, seen him many times over the years at that same spot, He told me he doesn't understand why the truckers are here and they don't bother him. They bring over food to him and he's been invited to eat with them. Well, the truckers have since expanded their convoy to include the Ambassador Bridge in Michigan as well. This is the one between Detroit and uh, and Canada. And as of this writing, the blockade of this bridge has been going on for 50 plus hours and has the potential to cause severe supply chain issues. Now, Aiden Tate says, as previously discussed here at the Organic Prepper, this Freedom Convoy idea has rapidly gained traction throughout the world as well. A New Zealand convoy is currently being organized with plans to meet up in the capital city of Wellington. Scottish truckers are preparing to head to Edinburgh. Also, English truckers are headed to London. Ireland and Wales have begun to organize. Even Austria, home of some of the most draconian levels of force against citizens, currently has truckers preparing to head out to Vienna. 
It appears this movement is only going to continue to spread, particularly after the success it's seen in Alberta and Saskatchewan, where governments have promised that they will allegedly remove all restrictions in the upcoming weeks. But as this movement does grow, we're liable to see increasing levels of political resistance. And Aiden Tate says, we will keep you updated as events unfold. I think one of the reasons that you're seeing uh, a number of uh, vaccine, well, I don't know if the vaccine mandate so much, but the vaccine passports and various mask mandates and lockdown mandates, they are falling by the wayside right and left across the United States right now. And I think part of it is out of the fear that because there is a trucker convoy shaping up, or at least there, there is talk of one shaping up here for the U.S., Now, I don't want to make it sound like, boy, Brian, you just really revel. You're, you're sitting here just cheering as the world goes up in flames. Except these truckers are peaceful in how they're doing things. Okay, not peaceful in the sense that their honking is surely irritating some folks, but honk, honk, that's what it sounds like in clown world. But to pretend that this is a great threat and disruption to everybody who's trying to live a peaceful life and, oh, boo-hoo, this is so painful... While turning a blind eye to the literal destruction, arson, and just carnage inflicted by all the black-clad and BLM rioters from last year or the year before. Yeah, that kind of hypocrisy just, just can't be allowed to stand. So, those who are joining these freedom convoys, those who are promoting them, I wish you Godspeed. And to the government officials who are trying so hard to shut them down, I wish you nothing but wet socks and cold feet. This is The Brian Hyde Show.